This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Uh, today we are um, sort of continuing, picking up in a series that we started last week that we're calling Tune My Heart. If you weren't here with us last week, we, we sort of laid some groundwork uh, for this series where we're, um, we started back in my shower a few months ago. Uh, I was going through a difficult season of life and, and was singing this great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written by a man named Robert Robinson in 1757. He was 22 years old when he penned the great words to this song. And as I was singing it, I sang the very first line, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And I paused there and just started to reflect on the reality and the truth of what Robinson wrote so many centuries ago. That the the heart can be both in tune and out of tune. The the heart can be uh, both dry and and dead and hurting, or it can be alive and vibrant and life-giving. And in many ways, the shape and form and course that our life takes is determined by the condition of our heart. And so when Robinson writes, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. What he's asking is that God would reach down inside of him and do something that he can't do on his own. That he would change him, that he would transform him, that he would open his eyes to see the goodness and the glory and the grandeur of our great God. Well, in the shower, I started to ask myself the question, God, how do you tune our heart? How do you tune the heart, because if we can't do it on our own, well, how do you do it? Um, really, it boils down to, we said last week, this a posture, a posture of, of asking God, God, would you work, and God, would you move? And we said that the Christian life is a lot more like a sailboat than it is a speedboat. With a speedboat, you go to the gas station and you fill it up with gasoline and then you turn it on and throttles down and you zoom all around and you do all the work. But in a sailboat, your job is to get the sail up and pay attention to where the wind blows. And so we said that this series is about getting our sails up and asking God to bring the wind Now, I didn't know that he was going to bring it on a Sunday afternoon when the Broncos were playing, (laughs) which is potentially devastating for their Super Bowl run. But, Lord, you know, okay, it's in your divine sovereignty. But but, uh, ironically, it's supposed to be really, really windy today. The question becomes, what does it look like as a follower of Jesus to have our, our sail up? That's where we want to dive into and sink anchor, as it were, today. Uh, We're going to look at one of God's main ways that he tunes the human heart and soul to sing his grace as the hymn writer wrote so many years ago. I I grew up in a family of musicians. My dad has been a worship leader at a church ever since I could remember up until a few years ago. Um, He was in the choir. He was in the worship band. I can remember him doing a rendition of Carmen's Radically Saved that just brought the entire house down. It was awesome. Um, Before that, though, I found out later that my grandfather was a musician as well. He played the banjo in a band called Swingin' in a Waltzin' with Sweet Eddie Paulson. (laughs) 
kid you not, you cannot make that kind of stuff up. And so we had this old banjo. And so uh, when I was serving with a ministry in college and they said, we need somebody to lead worship. Does anybody know how? No hands went up. I initially raised my hand and said, I'll learn. And as those words came out of my mouth, I thought, oh no, because I didn't know a darn thing about music or guitar, but I picked up my dad's guitar and started to learn chords. And uh, it turns out that, that that wasn't a gift that got passed down to me. It skipped me and went to my brother. And so I was one of the, one of the very worst guitar players I knew in college, but I was a Christian and a, and a guy in college. And so one of the requirements to be a Christian in college is you have to learn the acoustic guitar. And so I did. Um, and I was terrible. I still, I still have no ear for music. A few weeks ago when I helped lead worship, uh, Aaron said, hey, can you, there's a harmony in there. Can you hit that harmony? And I said, no, I can't even hear that harmony, you know? <laughs> Get somebody, why don't you do that harmony? I'll sing melody, okay? Uh, but luckily for me, um, they make a thing called a guitar tuner. And so I could play for years with my guitar out of tune. But luckily, they have this little device. And what you do is you take it and you pluck a string. And this instrument tells you if your instrument is in tune. And you know what? God hasn't left you without a tuner for your heart. In fact, he's given you one in his grace and in his mercy and in his love for you and in his desire that you would walk in the goodness and grace that he designed you for. Now, we've been around that tuner for so long that oftentimes we we either ignore it or we don't view it as such. But if you're holding a Bible in your hand, would you just hold it up right now? If, you're holding, if you have a Bible, would you just hold it up? This is one of God's greatest tuners in your life. It's one of the ways we go to God and ask him, God, is my heart in tune? Am I, am I walking with you? Am I believing the right things? Am I, am, I, am I doing the things, God, that you would invite me to do that would bring fullness of life to me and my family and my community? It's one of his greatest gifts to you. And I want to unpack this morning how uh, the approach that we take to these words has the potential to shape the course of our life. Uh, I'm going to be in two primary passages today. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and put a finger there. We're going to start there, and then we're going to land in John chapter 5. So you can put a finger in both places or a bookmark if you have it on you version. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, This is um, Moses recording the words of God, and he's telling the Israelites why God allowed them to wander around in the desert for so long, for 40 years. Listen to what he says. He says, he he humbled you. I mean, that's, that's an understatement. They were wandering for 40 years. Didn't know where their meals were going to come from. Didn't know where their water was going to come from. And, and God instructed them, and he led them every step of the way. And he let you hunger. Isn't that interesting? That there may be some, some people in this room this morning where God is in his grace and mercy, as you'll see, letting you hunger a bit. Letting you say, hey, God, God is, there, is there more to life? Is there more to this relationship? Is there a better way of doing these things? There's, there's um, a grace of God that sometimes he pulls back and says, maybe a little hunger would stir you to pursue me a little bit more. He says, he, hung, he let you hunger, and then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. 
that he might make you know, the scriptures say, that man does not live by bread alone. Isn't that interesting? So early on in our holy scriptures, God's going to make this point. He's going to say, don't ever let anybody tell you that you're just a clump of matter, that you're just a physical being. He says, no, 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 no. No, people don't live. They may exist by bread alone, but people don't live by bread alone. But man, man lives. Man comes fully alive, moves beyond just simply existing, but moves into really living by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He says, here's what your wandering was about. And and it might be what your wandering's about this morning too. Your wandering was designed in order to get you to the place where you knew that it wasn't just about bread, but that it was about word. That it was about a posture of, of heart and soul that says to God, God, in order to live this life the way that you designed it to be lived, I need to hear from you. I love the way that the great pastor Eugene Peterson puts it, and he says this, Christians feed on scripture. Holy scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. Now that's important. That's important because in a day of of prevalent Bible studies, which is not a bad thing, that's a good thing, but it can stop there. He says, we don't use scriptures. We don't just study scripture. We assimilate it, he says. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, Missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration to the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. He says, followers of Jesus, here's what they do. They, They take God's word and they ingest them. They say to God, God, we don't just want to study your word, but we want your word to become a piece of our Life. We want your word to direct our life. We want your word to define our life and recalibrate our hearts. He said, followers of Jesus, they feed on scripture. Does that define you? Does that define you? Do, do you? do you feel like, all right, Lord, I need to hear from you. In order to live this life in the way that you designed me to, I need to hear from you. I mean, I've heard, heard a lot of people who, when they talk about Scripture, there's, there's um, two primary things that surround their thoughts of Scripture. One is a sense of guilt. So anytime I, I start to do a message on reading the Bible, there's some people that go, oh gosh, here's a pastor who gets to sit in his office all day and read the Bible. We, we pay him to do that. Now he's going to tell me that's what I'm supposed to do too. So, so there's, this, there's this semblance of guilt that surrounds the scriptures. And then there's also this semblance of, of duty. I'm supposed to do it, but I don't really like doing it. Right? I, I, I don't know what it says. I, I hear that a lot. I don't get anything out of it. I hear that a lot. And it's just sort of dry. Like the words of God. Dry? 
And see, here's the deal. A wrong approach to Scripture, I think, can lead us either to guilt or to not really be able to, off the pages of Scripture and into, of our, into our heart, reap the nutrients and sustenance for life that God designed it for. So what I want to do is I want to start with the premise that, that word, the words of God breathe life to the human soul, and then I want to teach you what the Bible says about how that actually impacts your life. So turn back over to John chapter 5, because Jesus is going to talk a little bit about Scripture in John chapter 5. Um, we're going to start, I want to give you a little bit of context for this passage, and so we're going to start in verse 31. And here's sort of the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is addressing a group of people, and he's giving a defense of his sonship, of his deity. He's telling people why they can believe and base their life on the fact that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He says this in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So this would have been um, similar to any court of law. He says, I can't just tell you that I'm the son of God and have you believe me. I get it. So he's going to tell them three things that back up this truth. There's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. So he's going to say, John the Baptist, that's, that's um, exhibit A as to my deity. He's bore witness about the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Talking about John, he says, he was a burning, a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works. So this is uh, exhibit B. So you have John the Baptist declaring my deity too. You look at my life and see the work that I've done, he says, that I'm doing to bear witness about the Father who sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So he's going to say, all right, there's a, another proof that I am the Son of God bore witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And he says, and the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you if you don't believe in the one whom he sent. So he says, all right, three proofs that I am who I say I am. One, John the Baptist, as the scriptures foretold, came and declared that I am the Son of God. Two, look at my life, the miracles I do, the works that I've done, put on display the fact that I am powerful. And three, the Father's testimony about me, that book you hold in your hand right now, the Word of God. Now that's quite the claim. That's quite the claim that Jesus makes. And here's what he goes on to say to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So he goes, hey, you, you study these scriptures. It would just be the Old Testament at that point in time. You study these scriptures because you want to approach them and you want to get something from them. You want to learn something about God. You want to do something in your life that's going to maybe allow you to check a box. You want to have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, he says. Yet. Uh, will you circle that word if you have your own Bible? Yet. You refuse to come to me 
that you may have life. What Jesus says here is both um, beautiful and terrifying. Because <laughs> the Jewish community of, of faith, the, the followers of God, as it were, the Pharisees were, were, as we talked about earlier this fall, they were the A-team as far as religion went. They knew more about the Old Testament scriptures probably than anybody in this room knows, even in this digital age of accessible information. They knew it all. They had it memorized. And what Jesus said is, all of that time you spent studying and all of that time you invested in knowing the word didn't actually produce in you what I intended the word to produce in you. That's scary. See, see, that means that you can be in Bible studies, which we hope you are. You can be in life groups and study the Bible, and we hope you're in those too. There's new ones starting in the next few weeks. Uh, you can spend hours a day in the Word studying for yourself and miss it. And miss it. And I think the reason the Bible is perceived as dry. And I think the reason the Bible is perceived as lifeless, and I think the Bible, the reason the Bible is perceived as a 15-minute devotion in the morning that we can check off on our to-do list, is because maybe, in a sense, we've missed it too. Maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something in these God-breathed words on these pages that we miss when we approach it in the same way that the Pharisees do, just to study it and just to know it and just to gather information. So the question becomes, all right, Ryan, well, if you're not supposed to approach it in that way, how are you supposed to approach it? What, are, what is the approach to scripture that brings and breathes life into the human soul? I'm glad you asked for that. Let me give you three things that the text says, okay? One, the words of scripture bring life and breathe life into the human soul by creating a transformation that happens through relationship with Jesus. So the devastating part about hearing people say, "Mm, just not all that interested. And like I said, this isn't about guilt. This is about growth. And so if that's you, that, that just means that there's a lie that you're believing about this book. So let me speak to that lie a little bit. What Jesus says is, this is about coming to me, knowing me. And receiving life, so, so moving from lifelessness to vitality, from death to life, through the God-breathed words on this page that introduce us to the person and work of Jesus. That's what the Bible is all about. He says it's about knowing him. See, the power in the Bible is in knowing Jesus, not in implementing principles or gathering information like I said before, you have on your phone, if you have a smartphone, if you have a dumb phone, you probably don't, but if you have a smartphone, you have more information at your fingertips than centuries before. I mean, I mean, 20 years ago, people would have had to go to Denver Seminary to get that information that was on your phone. They'd have to sit in the library and read through this thing called a book. It's, um, it's paper with words on it that's bound. And on your phone, you have information upon information upon information. And the, the question is, in an information age where, where, where facts and truths are more accessible than ever, why is discipleship waning? Why, why is there, as information increases, discipleship seems to 
decrease. I wonder if it's because we're just so used to being surrounded by information and having it bombard us from so many different directions that we don't assimilate it into relationship anymore. We just hear things and we file it away. God didn't design this book for you to know this book. He designed it for you to know him. And I think so many followers of Jesus, the end is scripture. It's called Bible idolatry. There's probably a word, a compound word, bibliotry, that, where we worship the pages of scripture. And Jesus says, no, 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 it was never about that. It's not about that now, and it wasn't about that then. It's about worship of the God that the scriptures reveal. Not about just learning information, because I agree with you. That is potentially dry. It's the reason that nobody just sits down with the encyclopedia and goes, brilliant. Oh, yeah, awesome. Nobody blogs about things that they read in the encyclopedia. Do they still make those? Garage sales, you can get them there. No, 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 this is information. This is, this is reading for relationship not necessarily only for information. So the question becomes, well, how does this type of transformation happen in relationship with Jesus? Let me give you uh, three ways that it happens. One is God starts to, as we dive into the words of Scripture in relationship with Jesus, transform the way that we see the world around us. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So, so he says, listen, our foundation, God has been merciful. And he spent 11 chapters unpacking just how merciful God's been. So, so he says, based on that, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Submit to him. Place yourself under him. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how does that happen? In a space and time and age when, when it's so easy to just get caught up in the cultural flow of what's right and what's wrong, how do we renew our minds? I mean, this is the tuner. This is where we, we pluck the strings of our heart and, and say, God, what do you... What do you say about that? What, is your, what does your word declare about that? And we start to, to, to move in a direction of believing and walking in truth, not in lie. And he says that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And he goes, and, and when the heart's in tune, this is what Paul said, when the heart's in tune, when the mind is renewed, and when you're walking in the truth that Jesus reveals... Oh, you just go, yeah, God, that's good. That's pleasing. It's acceptable. That's awesome. You're glorious. So what he says is when you're in my will, you're not going to be going, man, this is dry. This really stinks. He goes, no, no, no. I want you to, to tune the heart, to renew the mind that you might walk in good, pleasing, acceptable, perfect will. Where you just go, yes, thank you, God. See, the mind that believes truth walks in joy. The mind that is consumed with lies and darkness walks in want. And God says to you, no, 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 no. I want you to be transformed in relationship with Jesus in a way that changes you. 
Second thing I would say is that uh, the, the mind that is transformed, because he says that I'm bringing you life, is a mind that's consumed with and focused on the delight of relationship with Jesus. Listen to the way David writes this in the Psalms. He says, trouble and anguish have found me out. Anybody there? And trouble and anguish have found me out. It doesn't seem like they have to look too hard to find us either. But your commandments, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storm, your commandments, your, your word is my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I might live. You're my delight. Two and three. He says it here. God, you've sustained us through relationship that we are grounded in through your word and the person and work of Jesus. You sustain us. You walk with us. You comfort us. So in in an age where you can go and download a ton of different methods of studying scripture, I want to sort of do some course correcting throughout this message and give you some great questions to ask as you read. One, where do I see Jesus in this passage? Where do, I, where, where, where do I sense Jesus saying through this passage? You go, well, what if we're in the Old Testament, Paulson? Well, we'll get there at the end, but it's still the right question to ask. It's still the right question to ask. Jesus, how are you revealing yourself and how are you inviting me to walk with you through your word? Well, Jesus goes on, and he says this. He says, I don't receive glory from people. I mean, indeed, they end up killing him. So true statement, Jesus. But I know, but I know. He goes, I'm not looking for you to uh, give me glory. I'm not giving for you to, uh, looking for you to clap and say, brilliant. We now believe because of those three points, they were brilliant, Jesus. He says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Well, 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 why does he know that? Because they totally missed the love letter. Verse 43, I've come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He goes, hey, 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 here's the, here's the way that I know you don't know the word and the way that I intended for you to know the word. The love of God has not sunk into your soul. So we have to ask the question, God, not just, not just um, uh, make observation and application and interpretation, but God, how, through your word, are you declaring to me that you love me? Because Jesus said people that know his word are confident and founded in his love. In his love. That's a different approach to Scripture. That's a different approach to words on a page. It's not just words on a page. It's declaration to a heart and to a soul that needs to hear that he loves us. And God knows that. That book you're holding in your hand, if you're holding a Bible right now, one of the reasons Jesus says you have that book is because that's a slippery truth. To believe that God the God, the maker of it all, the one who spoke all the stars into existence and calls them out each by name, would say to you and to me, I love you. 
See, if you know the word in the way that Jesus intended and designed for you to know the word, you will know his love. And if you don't, you probably won't. You probably won't. See, he, he, the words of scripture bring life to the human soul by inviting us to receive the lavish love of God. My kids, Ethan and Avery, they've, they've gotten into this sort of strange habit. Not sure when it started. But whenever we, um, whenever we discipline them or whenever we tell them no and then they do something and we get upset with them, when we're visibly upset, they ask us this question, Daddy, do you still love me? Do you still love me? And we always answer, we're always going to love you regardless of what you do. We're always going to love you. But then, you know, when they do something wrong and we discipline them again, they ask the same question. Daddy, do you love me? And I thought, what a ridiculous question. Of course we love you. How many of you have asked God the same question, though, lately? God, because of X, Y, and Z in my life, I've got to ask the question, God, God, do you love me? And I think his answer to you is, Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. Go back to my word and see the way that I love you. See the work of Jesus on the cross. See life through that lens. Walk in the goodness and the joy of what I have for you. But here's the truth of the matter, friends, is that that words have this ability to shape worlds, don't they? I mean, that's why we can all remember something that somebody said to us way back years, maybe decades ago, that defines the course of the way that we walk. It's the reason that we're still insecure about the way that we look is because somebody said something way back when. It's the reason that we lean towards perfectionism because we're uh, just questioning, will I be accepted if I'm imperfect here? Words shape worlds. God knows that about you and his design is that his word would shape your world. I read this study a while back about um, a scientist. His name was Dr. Emoto. And he took, um, he took water crystal, water molecules, and he had two different sets of them. And one set of them, he spoke words like love and joy and peace, and he, he played um, classical music to this water. And the other set, he um, played heavy metal. Not, not necessarily anything wrong with that. Maybe there is. He played heavy metal, and he um, spoke words of hatred and dryness and lifelessness. And he did this study under a microscope to analyze um, what the water crystals looked like. This was the water crystal that had the um, negativity spoken over it. And then this was the water crystal that had the life spoken over it. I don't know what you make of that. He would argue that words shape worlds. Um, Jesus would argue the same thing, though. It's the spirit, he says in John chapter 6, verse 63, who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and, what's that word? Life. Jesus says there's life in the words that I speak. The instruction that I give. 
The question is, have we allowed our heart to soak in the goodness of Scripture long enough to really believe that and have it take root in our soul? This isn't just a spiritual discipline or an exercise. This is a recalibrating of the human heart to say, God, you tell me what's true about me. And he goes, oh, I will. If you let me, I'll tell you what's true. I'll tell you that, that I'm slow to anger and abounding in love. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing that's in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you that you stand before the throne of God, pure and holy, spotless and blameless. I'll invite you. Don't walk in fear. You're not a slave anymore. You're a son or a daughter of the king. He says, I'll tell you, and these are coming out of Romans 8, I'll tell you that you stand before the throne of God, holy, spotless, blameless, without any sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. Christ, and when you think you're under condemnation, just remember that you have a mediator before the throne of God who stands before God on your behalf and says, no, they're with me. Now see, the natural mind doesn't walk in that. They walk in question, they walk in doubt, they walk in God, well, this is who I really am because this is what I've done and you must feel this way about me. But the heart that soaks in the word of God. convinced of the love of God. So, are you? One of the things that's been helpful to me is, as I read, to read this less like an encyclopedia and more like a letter. So, so I ask questions to God. If this is his word, uh, he might want to have something to say about it. So as I read, I pause often and say, God, what are, you, what are you saying to me through this? Not just, God, what do you want me to know, but God, what do you want my heart to soak in today? Is there, as I read in the morning, is there sort of an idea, a truth that you want me to grasp onto and hold throughout the day that just might shape and determine the course of the way that I walk, that I'm rescued, that I'm righteous that you're here, all of these things are slippery truths for the human soul. And so he says, ground yourself in it because you're going to forget it. And finally, oh, uh, this is just a great quote. I, I forgot it in my notes, but here's what, he, here's what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, says. He says, half of our fears are for neglect of the scriptures. You lay that on your life. How much of the fear that we're walking in is because we really haven't given attention to allow these words to penetrate our soul? John, moving on in Jesus' invitation to you and I about Scripture. First, he says, the Scriptures are about me. Second, he says, they're about you knowing the fact that I love you and I'm for you. And in verse 44, it continues like this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? So here's this final thing that he says to us about the words of Scripture. The words of Scripture bring life by freeing us from self-centeredness. He goes, you keep asking for glory from one another. You want that applause so much at, at work, in the home, etc., etc. You want that applause so much, it reveals to you the fact that your mind is consumed with you. And what Scripture does, he says, is it frees us to focus on and to worship the God who created it all. 
I mean, you think about the freedom, even just in reading through the book of Genesis this last month, because I'm, I'm reading through the Bible in the year, um, reading through the book of Genesis and, and the very first phrase, in the beginning, God created. I mean, you could, you could live there for the rest of your life. And how many of us feel like we have to create in our worlds or even feel like we can create? And God says, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the creator. I'm the giver of life. There's no sorry, but there's no room for the self-applause here. This is my story. This is what I'm doing. To see God's grace and redemption, it takes the focus off of you and puts it back on him. To see God's love that he says in his words stretches throughout all of eternity. See, the mind washed in the word of God sees itself clearly and God rightly. And it will change you. It will change you. Um, Peterson writes, and, and these are both from his book, Eat This Book. He says this, when we submit our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which we find our story, in which our stories find themselves. This whole book is about Jesus. From beginning to end, not just the red letters, those are misleading. Not just the red letters are about Jesus. The, the whole thing is actually about him. It's not about you. It's really not. Um, Jesus says, uh, and on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with some of his friends, and he says to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. And they're probably like, wah, 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 you know. <laughs> to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's like, if you studied the word, you should have known that. And beginning with Moses, listen to this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's at the very beginning of your Bible, through the peace that they had, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he starts at the very beginning. Wouldn't you love to be on the road to Emmaus? And he goes, let's start in Genesis creation. It's about me. You want to go to the, the next story? Noah. Oh yeah, I'm going I'm to be the better ark and rescue you from the coming storm. You want to go a little bit further? Yeah, I'm the greater Abraham who leaves his land and invites you into the promised land. You want to go a little bit further? And he goes, uh, can you imagine being with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? where he unpacks the reality that the scripture isn't about you and great principles to emulate and things to try to do and a checklist to try to accomplish, but reveals the person and the work of our great God. There's a video clip I'd love for you to see. Um, a pastor that I respect a lot, whose name is uh, Tim Keller. He's written a lot of books, but he has this um, snippet in one of his sermons where he walks through the reality of Luke chapter 24. And I just want you to hear him say it because uh, it's just beautiful and brilliant. Will you guys roll that for me? 
when I came to terms with that, at first I was a little bit upset because I was always told that this is the roadmap to life. It's actually the invitation from God to know him, to love him, to walk with him, to enjoy him. I think our mining for information maybe has caused us to miss the person that this is all about. And the invitation given to you, this is a glorious invitation, friends. It's not about you. It's actually freedom from you to know and to worship this great God. I want to invite you over the next um, three weeks. The book of John, as I've spent some time there over the last few months, I've just grown to love the way that John paints this portrait of Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you over the next 21 days to just read one chapter of John a day, uh, to do it as a community. So we'd enter into this together. Well, maybe, not maybe, we will start tomorrow. Um, and you can read some reflections up on our website that uh, myself and some of our other staff and pastors will write. But we invite you, would you dive into the book of John and to ask some really simple questions as you do? Jesus, how do you want me to see you differently because of your word? How are you inviting me into relationship with you? What are you saying to me? And as we just saw, what does this reveal about the nature and the character of God? So over the next three weeks, I invite you through this journey through John with us as a community together to ask Jesus to speak to and give life to our souls through his word, through his word. You game? Just wave at me. Let me know you're, you're, you're in, you're going to do it. All right, great, awesome. Uh, God knows, he sees, he holds you accountable. And somebody just took a picture of all those hands in the air. No, I'm just kidding. This isn't about guilt. This is about growth. And we want to ask God, because he speaks through his word still today, God, would you speak to and would you conform our hearts and our souls? Would you stand and pray with me? And we're going to close with one great declaration together. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.